thanks so much for coming. Um, H is for Hawk. There are some things I like to read, some paragraphs and some things in the, in the book that I thought were just really lovely and very moving. Um, overall, I have to say I really enjoyed this book. I don't know, I, I don't know if I can give it a like three out of four stars. Um, I found her writing really beautiful. I found it um, poetic and very, um, it was more um, like a literary experience than I, than I expected. I know there's a, there's a whole genre of these kinds of books, right? Someone suffers an enormous loss, man or woman, and then they find something unconventional to get them through that loss. The, the one that jumps to mind for me is like wild. Um, a woman uh, suffers through the death of her mother and a heroin addiction and then goes into nature to sort of find herself. Um, this is a similar situation. Woman's father dies. Um, she decides to train a hawk, which is an unusual thing to do, and which is why I was intrigued by this book. Um, I found the language really beautiful. Uh, there were times when it was slow for me. Chapters 21 to 26, I um, started to get frustrated with the language. The language that I was sort of in love with in the beginning, I started to feel like it was like too much. And that's just, that's complete subjective, like my own personal taste. But I started to get a little annoyed. And I don't know if anyone else had that experience. We'll, we'll talk about it. Um, but I was really moved by it. And I thought that she, she writes beautifully and she has a wonderful turn of phrase. Um, and I want to talk about some of those. But overall, I was really moved by the book. I thought it was wonderful, and I would absolutely recommend it to friend or foe. Aya, what is your overall Yeah, it took me a book? while to get into it, partly because it was required reading, which I don't think I've done in yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and this idea of like, oh, shit, I have to read this <laughs> book by this date or, uh -huh. and talk about it intelligently or mildly intelligently. So that was interesting to watch myself like resist reading this book because I actually love reading and I do a ton of it in my off time. And I'm also working right now and when I'm working I generally don't read because I just can't keep it in my head. But I just didn't want to read this book. So I spent the first like maybe five chapters going... <sighs> <laughs> I'm getting... Th oh, how many pages? How yep. many pages? Yep. And then it turned... And I always go to blame myself for things. So I guess I didn't really blame the book, but I, do, I did I find do, it a slow start. I do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. So I assumed it's me and my problem. And then midway <laughs> through the book, I found it just fascinating. I always found it immensely quotable. Like I found myself yes. wanting to highlight, even if we weren't doing a book club, I found myself going, oh, wow, that's great. Or I want to save that thought for yeah. later. Yeah. So, so I loved the writing that way, but I did feel like it took a while to get into it. And then once I did, I sort of went with it until near the end when it starts to get a little repetitive, um, where you're like, okay, come on. Like every story is her going out with this hawk and like something going wrong just when you think everything's gotten better. And, it, and right. that I found a little slogging as well. Yeah, yeah. Crispin, what was your... Um, well, uh, everyone recommended this book to me because they, they know that I love birds. So I had about sort of... I, I knew that it had won just about everything or yeah. come close to winning just about everything. So I'd heard of it and then it was... And then people would say, you know, um, maybe there's a play in this book and if you've read the book, there isn't a play in this. I write plays. <laughs> there, is not, there is not a play there in this There isn't a book. movie either, I don't think. Uh, maybe and, a weird TV um, series that I wouldn't watch. 
And so it was, it was, for me, it was like going to that movie that, that everyone has told you is the greatest thing that you, you're ever, ever, ever going to see. And as someone who, who loved birds, it fell a little short of, of that for me. Yeah. Um, but, um, but then you, it's one of those books where you'll then come across something that is just sort of, look, it's, it's just beautifully written. It, it is a beautifully, beautifully, beautifully written book. Um, and, um, uh, and a little bit about it, she trains a, this is a very difficult word for me. Uh, we say hawk. Um, over here it's spelt H-O-double-K or something, hawk. <laughs> and uh, I'm caught mid-Atlantic not knowing what to do, but it's partly, it's, 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 it's it, my father hasn't died. Right. That is a that I know that I'll come back to this book when my father dies, and it's going to mean yeah. a whole lot more to me. Yeah. Um, uh, I hope he doesn't um, um, for no. a little while, um, Mr. Wittal. He can't hear me. I keep thinking he can hear me. He wouldn't know how to get He'll hold of this. He'll be listening to this. He, no, no, he doesn't have we'll a chance. You say, well, <laughs> "What? It's on the computer." <laughs> um, I can't find that. Um, but it's also this strange. She comes across this book by. Um, T.H. White, yes. is that right? Yes. A, one of those peculiar British gentlemen who uh, probably still exist, but certainly uh, fulfills every sort of stereotype you have about peculiar British men of a certain <laughs> age who have been educated <laughs> in a certain way, um, uh, who seems to, besides uh, enjoying training hawks, um, uh, flagellating uh, younger men yes. in private schools. Um, private parts in private schools. <laughs> um, and, um, and she gets really sucked into that. So it's partly, it's, 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 it's two things. It's, it's, it's three things, dealing with the death of the father, training the hawk, and investigating this strange man, strange-ish man, I think he's pretty odd, pretty peculiar, um, yeah. who, for whom the hawk meant something else. It was, uh, and they're both, I suppose, trying to get free of something. For him, it was the, for T.H. White, it was the burdens he bears. For her, it's the death of her her father. So I looked, I read it a long time ago, as well, six months, which for me is a long time, and I have a very poor memory, so I, I had to go back to it today, and coming back to it today, I thought, I really, I really want to give this another go, mm. another time, I want to read it again. Yeah. Um, so, um, no, it's lovely. I found myself rereading paragraphs over and over. Did anyone else have that experience reading this book? Just me. Fair enough. Uh, did you like reread, or did where you find the? I would read paragraphs and go. I didn't quite chew all of that. I need to read this paragraph. Yeah. Again, again especially in the beginning, because I was constantly thinking about other things, which right. is my fault. Have you ever been in a book club before? No, I've tried to start a book club for like books you read when you were a child, because I think it'd be really interesting to go back That's and sweet. like read the books that you read as a child now with the knowledge that they're written by adults with agendas and like what are the agendas yes. behind yes. the children's books what that we read? What are they selling? Um, yeah, that idea came to us like four years ago. Okay. So this is my first book club. Fair enough. You'll get to it. Um, Can I just read a quotable bit? Please. This is the sort of thing you come across. Please. Just when you might be going to go to bed. Um, that is how goshawks kill. The borders between life and death are somewhere in the taking of a meal. I couldn't let that suffering happen. Hunting makes you animal. 
but the death of an animal makes you human. There's a lot of that. Yeah. There's a lot of that sort of stuff in it. It's just, it's just brilliant. There's the archaeology of grief is not ordered. It is more like earth under a spade, turning up things you had forgotten. Surprising things come to light, not simply memories, but states of mind, emotions, older ways of seeing the world. Goss, uh, looking for goshawks is like looking for grace. It comes, but not often, and you don't get to say when or how. This novel is peppered with these beautiful, sort of lovely quotes that, for me, anchored the book. The times that I got distracted and was sort of frustrated when we went to TH White World, and I was like, ah, let's stay with our hero. Let's stay with her. Let's stay in the present day. Let's learn more about this scary bird and its yellow toes. And then we'd sort of go off until some weird cabin that TH White was getting real sad in. However, um, there, was a, like, there was this wonderful quote, it's on page 39, that made me sort of fall in love with him. In, uh, in England Have My Bones, White wrote one of the saddest sentences I have ever read. Falling in love is a desolating experience, but not when it is with a countryside. He could not imagine a human love returned. He had to displace his desires onto the landscape, that great blank green field that cannot love you back, but cannot hurt you either. I just thought that was so devastating that he wasn't able to, he was unable to feel love. He could give love, but was unable to sort of have it reciprocated. Um, and again, that, those are like these little moments that I was really sort of drawn in. The T.H. White's, so we learn about this woman and her grief, we learn about uh, goshawks, we learn about T.H. White, but it's also like a nature novel, which to, uh, or like nature writing, and I have a tough time, I think, with nature writing, because I lose my patience. I don't, my, I think my imagination is there for a good part of it, and I'm, I'm with the descriptions, and then it goes on for a page and a half, and I sort of just, my brain goes elsewhere. Um, do you, were you completely plugged into like because she goes on and on about this the beautiful sort of English countryside and how lovely all these hedgerows are and uh, and lots of names of birds that I'd never heard of that I had to look up but I found it kind of boring sometimes you know I did too but I also thought it was like I, I thought like this is part of the point is like patience and what she talks yes. about with patience and, and sitting with the goshawk and, and the amount of patience it takes to train this hawk um, and being present in the moment. So like I would get bored and then I'd be like, well, what, like refocus, like what are you actually reading? You know, don't let that sentence go by without understanding it. Yes. Um, and it was sort of a meditative experience to have to come back to the writing in that way. And I feel like maybe I'm giving her too much credit, but I, I feel, no, I, I think she, she intends this, is that those passages are about the experience of training a, a goshawk and, and being there in that moment. Yeah. Um, and there is boredom mm. in that, but there yeah, is yeah. also beauty. If right. You just have to stay focused. Yeah, you're exactly right. I almost think it, I'm going to bring baseball into this because I always <laughs> bring baseball and everything. There's a beauty of baseball because baseball can be super boring. About two and a half hours in, and it's the seventh inning, and it's four nothing, and they're like, "There's a pitching change." You're like, "Are you kidding? Like, what time is it?" But that's sort of the, the kind of the beauty of the game. Like, it's slow. It takes patience. It takes sort of diligence. And with that effort and with that extra work, you are rewarded. Um, but there, there were times when I didn't feel like the reward was was enough. Um, 
I don't. I, go ahead. Well, there are a lot of people who feel the same about baseball, aren't they? <laughs> yes, there are. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, I'm not one of them. I, I mean, I love baseball and I love cricket, but I, th- I think I think it's all deliberate. I think it's. Inc- she's. Uh, I feel um, much too stupid, really, to 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 say too much about this uh, this book. I think it's. I think she's 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 brilliant, and um, th- it does require patience, and that's her whole big thing yep. point, as somebody. British once said that, that that is the whole I think that's the whole thing um, and it's very like bird watching you don't know quite why you get so absorbed when right. you're watching birds you're in the middle of a sort of forest and nothing much is happening and then 20 minutes later you hear something and you think oh that sounds interesting and I think the point that sort of she's making is that um, that that is the point the, yeah you, you got lost in these landscapes get lost in time and become untethered from from uh, she sort of feels that that's what we've, what what what's been lost. She says a lot about the British landscape, English landscape, but it's always very often about how how it, it, the beauty is sort of superficial and man-made. That it's a very it's yes. not a wild. She tries to find wild parts of Britain, which is a hard thing to do. But the point she's making, I think, is that the, the relationship between there is a romanticization of the English landscape, and in fact, um, and in fact, it, it's its relationship with people is is, is a very close one. She talks about the romanticism of, of quote-unquote like old England when she was going on that walk yeah. and comes across that do you guys remember that moment towards the end when she's going uh, going for that walk and finds that old couple who admire the bird and then they say like isn't it a shame these immigrants yeah. coming into England and she's like what? And she keeps and she walks by and then she beats herself up for not responding to them but she says um, uh, God what's it say uh Yes, he says, isn't it a relief that there's things still like that, a real bit of old England still left, despite all these immigrants coming in? And she says, I don't know what to say. And later she says, old England is an imaginary place, a landscape built from uh, words, woodcuts, films, paintings, picturesque engravings. It is a place imagined by people, and people do not live very long or look very hard. We are very bad at scale. The things that live in the soil are too small to care about. Climate change, too large to imagine. We are bad at time, too. We cannot remember what lived here before we did. We cannot love what is not. Nor can we imagine what will be different when we are dead. We live out of three score to ten and tie our knots and lines only to ourselves. We take solace in pictures and we wipe the hills of history. Which I think, which I'm completely on board with. But I'm also like, why are we going here? Why are we spending a page to talk about this? Why are we? Well, she talks about a lot. She talks about images of birds too, and and how we think of birds versus what birds actually are, and the yeah. representations of goshawks in history. She talks at one point about how they're all described as sort of moody women, and it's actually the relationship of m- men with women reenacted in this relationship with yes. men and hawk. Yeah. Um, but the the ideas that we have based on images, and I just heard something on. NPR at some point that was talking about our memories and how our memories, the the more that you remember a memory, the less it is um, real, the, the less it is close to the actual memory because oh, wow. there's new synapses that get built every time you remember. So actually something you've remembered that you haven't remembered in a long time is a much more pure memory mm. than the memory that you've sort of tongued over and over again. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I, I thought about that in this book and, and her sort of discomfort with 
what we see and what we sort of have memorized as truth versus being um, next to a hawk and, and actually living with a hawk and what that actually is. Yeah. Um, and I think that's interesting on a broader level about how we interact with the world and, and what we see and the sort of um, the things we project on, on people and on... Yeah you know, nations and, yeah. you know, and that's sort of the point that she's making is, is for her, it, it becomes specific with the hawk, but I think it's a yeah. much broader there, idea. There's a lot of fun, like Freudian stuff going on. She talked about projection a lot. She talked about Freud a lot, which I was totally into. I thought that was, that was really fun. And, and I followed that and her seeing herself as the hawk. And then that also changed throughout the book. She saw herself as the hawk and then she, um, she tried to separate herself from the hawk because she knew that was destructive and was leading her down the wrong path. And then there were realizations because she was filing through like the stages of grief and she's like, well, where am I now? And she had that wonderful moment where she realized that she was in anger when that jogger ran by her she had the she had mabel on her and he sort of ran by and she felt this she's like i want this guy to die i want him to disappear and i have all this rage and anger for him and it's completely it's not displaced it makes sense and then he stopped and turned around and said oh that's a beautiful bird and she sort of settled down and realized that she was angry for absolutely no reason um, but her describing her stages of grief like through this bird and projecting them on the bird and the bird's behavior mirroring her behavior at some points I thought was really fun um, and sort of beautiful and descriptive. Um, I wanted to uh, ask, it's, I expected more backstory about the father. This is a, this is a book about her mor uh, mourning the loss of her father. And I expected there to be more of a backstory, like more endearing stories about her and her dad. But I, I thought there would be more sort of invested in, in that, and there wasn't. And yet I think it's okay. I think it still pays off in the end when she gives, when she writes that beautiful speech at his memorial. I thought it was totally earned. But as I was reading it, I was expecting a chapter like, let's go back into the past and learn more about what her relationship was with her dad. But she never goes there. She spends a little bit of time, but not much and I wondered if anyone out there did you were you guys aware of that did you expect to hear more family stuff or was it just the right amount what do you think anyone Paul Shear would have an answer he would as would Julian Smolinski <laughs> <laughs> all these uh, people came to see them they're just waiting it's a shame they're like when's Paul Shear gonna show up uh, <laughs> he's at work right now he's shooting the league yes I'm going to walk over there because this is for a podcast. And I'm going to put a microphone in front of you. This is the quiet part. Someone should sing. Hi. Is this? Hi. Hey, man. How are you? Uh, tell me your name. My name's Anne. And did you read the book? And what, overall, like, what was your like, sort of opinions about it? Um, I'm very much in line with all of you. I enjoyed her writing style. She's an impeccable writer. She yeah. puts a lot of thought into each word she uses. And, but at times you feel that you're experiencing those emotions over and over again. You're not having a new sensation. Yeah. And so I felt, dis I think, a disappointed as a reader because I'm like, I, I love you as a writer. I don't want to not enjoy your words. Yes. I felt the same way. I started beating myself up, like you said, Aya, that I wasn't enjoying it as much as I should have. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm, this is me. And I was like, no, it's not me. 
I can enjoy it. It's maybe it's the writer. Uh, did you have a point of view about the the father about her relationship? Uh, yeah, actually, one of my favorite anecdotes was near the beginning of the book when they lose the car, and I got a little confused as to how they found it. I felt like I thought they were children, or she was a, a kid, but maybe that wasn't the case. Um, but yeah, I thought that would maybe pop up a little more, especially as she's having this relationship with White, who's maybe not a surrogate father in the book, but you know, it's another relationship with a man. Yeah, yeah. And I thought maybe that she would have a little more about him. And her father. Are you talking about that story when she's on the train and she realizes that he'll, she'll never be able to see him again? Yeah. And she just sort of collapses in the train yeah. station? That's a beautiful passage. I love that passage as well. Um, and I love, I needed help. Um, I feel like I'm doing really weird book-based <laughs> stand-up. Uh, what about these books, huh? Um, that, there's a, that there was a, a moment where, I'm like hiding behind you. Um, that I wanted to, I didn't understand that what her, that the point of the story at his memorial was to, sorry, was to describe that uh, he was a born journalist. It took me, um, one of his friends coming up to say, I'm so glad that you told that story that shows that he was a born journalist. Did did, did you guys get that? I didn't. I thought he was just a photographer, but uh, I assumed that there was some sort of, uh, but um, I guess uh, he's a photojournalist. Yeah. I guess yeah, yeah, telling stories. But I was confused about that at first. I was too. confused too. Yeah, and that was sort of, um, yeah, that was off for me. Um, did uh, what did people think about T. H. White? I did anyone are people have T. H. White fans here? Did you know his? Yeah. Yeah, okay, there's, there's two TH White fans. Did you enjoy, can I put a microphone in yeah. front of you, Ryan? Um, did you enjoy that aspect of the novel, like getting into his personality and his, his darkness? Was that helpful or distracting? Yeah, I, did, I just loved his like eccentricity. I kind of liked going back into that world because I, I, I found her sometime, like Anne was saying, like sometimes it was the same emotion again and again, and it was just nice yeah. to step into his like, just this crazy otherworldly time, and his his like overly reacting and like just lying down and making himself like a little grave to wait for the bird and yeah. stuff. Oh my God, that was so that was so, uh, such a beautiful description. Um, yeah, I, I was I because I don't know him as a writer. I haven't read the Once and Future King. Of course, I've saw. Uh, Sword in the Stone, which I rewatched last night, by the way, <laughs> which was really adorable. Squirrels fall in love with it. Um, that's a really wonderful scene. Um, uh, I wanted to read one of the quotes that I really loved um, from this book that I that really I think will m- maybe more than any part of the book will stay with me. Was the when we're introduced to T. H. White, she has this amazing story about um, meeting this pilot, uh, this like U2 pilot. Um, where is it? Um, and he fl- flew these solo missions. Do you remember this part of the book? It's pretty early on. Um, Who read T.H. White yeah, in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is on page 32. I used to read, he said, unexpectedly, and with that his face changed and his voice too. His deadpan Jaeger drawl slipped, was replaced with a shy, childlike enthusiasm. The Once and Future King by T.H. White, he said. Have you heard of him? He's an English writer. It's a great book. I used to take that up, read it on the way out and the way back. Wow, I said. 
Yes, because this story struck me as extraordinary, and it still does. Once upon a time, there was a man in a spacesuit and a secret reconnaissance plane reading the Once and Future King, that great historical epic, that comic, tragic, romantic retelling of the Arthurian legend that tussles with questions of war and aggression and might and right and the matter of what a nation is or might be. I just... That image is burned in my brain of a guy on autopilot in a U-2 plane who's, I think he's described as being like 30,000 feet above like where sort of commercial airlines, he was like at 50 or 65,000 feet, I'm not sure where, but where, I forget how she describes it, but like between the blue and the black. Uh, and that's, that's like an amazing image to me. I saw him like pop open his sort of air mask and like get comfortable in this room the size of, you know, half of this table and read The Once and Future King. I, I, I thought that was just stunning. And, and the idea of, of loneliness, I thought, was really... Mo- I mean, that's why that was there. It was this beautiful example of loneliness. Um, and I was really drawn to that story. And that's, that's one, one of the sort of images that I'll take with me from this book. I also realized that I've started to see birds differently. I don't know if anyone else had that response while they were reading this book or any time after. I was in the middle of the book, and I was driving down like Glendale, like between, like crossing the LA River between Atwater and sort of Silver Lake. And I think it was a heron. Or what a, color was it? <laughs> it was white. Yeah. <laughs> it, sounds like it was an egret. To, oh, maybe it was an yeah. egret, yeah. E-G-R-E-T. That's it. Yeah. It was an egret, and it flew over my car. It was like 10 or 11 feet above my car. And any other time in my life, I would have gone, oh, that's, that's cool. And I would have gotten back to driving. But this time, I went, oh, my God, it's an egret, or a heron, or whatever I said. I was so excited and enthusiastic about this bird flying over my car. And I went home and looked it up and tried to find like what kind it was. And that would not have happened, if, obviously, if I wasn't reading this book. And that has stayed with me over the last several days. I've been looking at the sky um, a little more than I usually do. I'll be at a stop sign or a red light, and I'll look up as opposed to look at the radio and try to find, like, Howard Stern's on a commercial, so I have to find something else to listen to. And, um, Maybe you should look at the road when no, you're No, no, that's not important. <laughs> No, uh, <laughs> yeah, I should look somewhere to look up or the radio Whoopsie. or the two choices. Whoopsie, um, but it was. Uh, I fi- I also found myself going down K holes on YouTube of goshawk videos. I was watched a whole bunch. Of, did anyone else try to? I mean, the cover is beautiful, and of course, there are no photographs in the book, but you can use your imagination. But I wanted to see what it really looked like. Did anyone else go online and look for pictures or no? Kevin's saying nope. F that bird. Anyone else go on YouTube and look at videos of goshawks killing rabbits? Am I the only one? Really? That's so bizarre. No, but I saw, I was in Ohio when I read this book, and I saw a hawk come down and attack something. And I was like, (gasps) I was in the cartoon, and I was like, oh my God! (laughs) I was so excited. (laughs) So I had a similar experience. Yeah, yeah, you just notice birds in a different way. It, It makes me wonder, though, like... Is anthropomorphism real? Like, like what we're investing in Absolutely. these animals, and Absolutely. like, what is the projection and projection, and what is the actual reality of the animal? Yes, great point. And I was so like confused by it because I don't live. I grew up in a city, 
and I live in a city now, and my experience with nature is, is in many ways limited. I mean, I get very excited when I see a coyote, or I get, you know, <laughs> and I, and I, but I don't live with animals. I don't have any yeah. pets right now right. either. And so I'm so curious what everyone's thoughts are in terms of like, that relationship yes. and what that is. Totally. I, I have the same, I felt the same way. And I, at the beginning, I was like, oh, she's just sensitive to her animal and she understands the animal's feelings. Like, I have a, I have a cat. I know when it's happy or sad. There are things, there are like things you pick up on. And then she started describing really specific elements of, of Mabel's personality. And I was like, is she really disappointed? Do you know that this bird is disappointed? I understand anger and hunger and frustration, but she started getting really specific, and I was like, I don't know if I buy this, and yet, when you spend so much time with an animal, an animal that you love, that you live with, and feed and take care of, you start to project stuff on it. Do you guys have, how many, show of hands, how many people have animals? And show of hands, how many of you think you know the complete ups and downs of your animals? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think um, there were times when I thought, ah, I don't know if I buy this. And then there were other times where I was like, well, I know. I, if you spend that much time with an animal, you sort of, you get to know its ins and outs. Um, but I think it was harder for me because I've never seen, I've never had a hawk on my fist. And I've never, um, that one time. Uh, <laughs> it was a confusing time. But I wasn't able, because I have no experience with what a hawk, how a hawk behaves, I was relying on her to paint the entire picture for me. If it was a dog or a cat, everyone knows whether a dog or a cat is happy or upset. It's, it's a lot, it's less subtle. But because I never knew how a hawk behaved, it made it a little bit harder. But I, I sort of I thought she was it. pretty restrained, actually. I thought that she loved, the, the, the mm. bird remained pretty wild in her mind, the irony being that it was a particular sort of bird that wouldn't still have been in Britain had it not been both destroyed and then inadvertently reintroduced. So I thought, I thought, I thought she kept it, I'm, my memory, I mean, maybe I'm forgetting stuff, but for me it was a sort of, it was, it, she resisted that. Hmm. Um, and that it was just, she's fallen in love with a killing machine. I mean, she goes on about that a, uh, a lot. This is a, this is a bird made for murder. Yeah. I think she says at some yeah. point. Um, uh, yeah. I, would, I was sensitive to that stuff at the beginning because I, uh, I was like, oh, we're going to get a lot of descriptions of rabbits getting murdered and a lot of bloody pheasants. And this is going to... But she described it in such a beautiful way. Like what you were saying before, um, to hunt is to, um, is to be human, is to see, it, see an, an animal die. And I bought into why these animals were, were getting caught. It was just sort of the natural circle of life. It didn't upset me. It didn't make me queasy. And that kind of stuff usually does. Like, I won't watch. This is a completely different experience. But I can't watch that movie. What is the SeaWorld documentary? Um, Blackfish. Have you guys seen Blackfish? I just hear it as the most traumatizing movie to watch because you're just seeing this beautiful whale like go crazy basically because it's kept in a you know in a swimming pool in San Diego and I just feel too much like <laughs> too much empathy for these animals and I can't watch it and I, I felt like I was going to feel that way with this book too it was going to be too brutal but I totally bought into why it was happening and I didn't think it was like there's some elements of hunting that I kind of roll my eyes at and I think it goes too far and this I didn't. I felt like it was completely au naturel. Like when she describes 
eating meat, the best way to eat a rabbit is a rabbit that is killed by a hawk that's not raised in a pen somewhere. Um, like they were, falconers were going green before like anyone else was. And I love that description. She's totally right. Um, so I want to try to eat some rabbit that was killed by a bird. She has a great quote about what hunting is that as a non-hunter and someone who believes very much that yes, if you can't kill your own food at some point, you probably shouldn't be eating meat and yet who has never killed her own food and eats meat. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I thought it was interesting because I've never really understood hunting and it's, uh, but I do understand human darkness. So I feel like, um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, anyway, this is what I, I thought was interesting about that. By skillfully training a hunting animal, by closely associating with it, by identifying with it, you might be allowed to experience all your vital, sincere desires, even your most bloodthirsty ones, in Mm. total innocence. You could be your true self. And I thought that was an interesting way to talk about what hunting was and, and that we do have these sort of dark bloodthirsty yeah. sides of ourselves that that you're able to enact in a safe environment in some yeah. way. Yeah, I like that she used the word, uh, uses the word innocence. I think that's, that's totally appropriate. Um, one of the things I wanted to read, it's just one sentence, but she has this unbelievable description of this great character who I wanted to spend more time with, Stuart, her, her friend, her like hawking friend. Um, he's introduced on page 25. He is a splendid chap, a carpenter and ex-biker, Solid and serene as a mid-ocean wave. That description will also stay with me. I, I don't know, maybe it's because I watch a lot of reality shows that are based on boats and oceans. I can't get enough of Delia's Catch. I'll watch that shit all day long, and I just like watching the sea because it's amazing. But a, a mid-ocean wave is such a beautiful, specific description of a man. And those little moments kept on reminding me that Helen McDonald is an incredible writer. Um, and also I love that, I mean, her, her background is she's, I mean, she writes poetry, um, but she isn't, uh, she's not a novelist, um, she's a historian. And yet she is so, I just, I, I wonder if it sort of surprised herself how beautiful the language was. It was unexpected because I didn't, because she's not, um, She's not, she studied English, but um, more from an academic side. So I was really taken by her language over and over again. But again, the stuff that kind of stumped me um, was I found it, like you said, repetitive towards the end. Um, and I wanted, does anyone else have an opinion about the repetitiveness and the like sort of poetry of her language? Or did most people, were most people sort of, show of hands, who was completely on board with her language the whole way through? Okay. For those listening, not a single hand went up. Um, I want to enter back into the audience and ask more questions. Can I just say like... Yes. While you're walking. What's that? Um, Can we just do it while you sit? Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. There's something profoundly in my mind, in my... Um, uh, it, this book is very British in many ways, too. I felt very removed from it in a certain way, in the way that I feel as an American interpreting um, the English. Yeah. Um, I'm often intimidated. There's a certain sense of reserve. I'm a very, like, friendly, you know, out there person and will keep talking if no one's talking because I just want it to be okay. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and there's not necessarily... I, I have not found that in many English people. Um, and I think some of this book... Um, and my reactions to it were were 
or American reactions yes, to yeah. it. And I'd be curious to hear what you I, thought. It's a strange book to be talking about here because that was my feeling. My feeling is it's an incredibly, in, unbelievably British book. Um, uh, that's why she doesn't talk about the father. Um, oh, God, right, she of can't course. Talk. Of course. It would be just, you wouldn't do, I, well, I mean, I, I know this is, I hear there's, there's a British person here. But it, it's, <laughs> a risk of, it's less hard to, to stereotype, but I get, I mean, I, uh, yeah, that's so British. That's, there's yeah, so much that's so British. The landscape is so British, and it happens to sort of tally with every single landscape that I remember from England. So so the chalk landscape where my grandmother used to live, and it's set around where I went to school, and then... And, and I like birds. And so you sort of read it in Los Angeles and you sort of you find yourself sort of checking yourself. Is, is, are you engaged in this as some sort of nostalgia? Are you suddenly feeling right. homesick? And it is sort of very familiar, but it could not be more British. And, it's, um, uh, and she could not be more yes. British. And uh, the restraint in some areas and the, is so British and the <laughs> endless fascination with uh, all boys... Private schools. Everything. It's a very, very British book, and it's sort of a funny yeah. thing to, 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 to. She may as well have written. I may, may as well have been a book about cricket, talking of baseball. You yeah. know, that, yeah. that seems to be doing very well over here. So it's sort of slightly miraculous. Yeah, Ryan, can I can I put you on the spot and ask if you felt the the overwhelmingly Britishness of the novel, and did you feel like it was appropriate and sort of spot on? Yeah, a lot of it, like the scenic stuff, it was like a little trip home. For yeah. Definite, like the descriptions, I, I really got mesmerized at points with that. And yeah. there was still that kind of, that kind of class divide of like, obviously I didn't grow up around hawking families. That wasn't a thing. So it, right. there was, uh, it was a bit weird, like still that world. Like I knew of fox hunting, but... I, I, I didn't even know that people properly still hunted with hawks like this. Yeah. And it does seem very, very bloodthirsty. Um, but I liked, like, towards the end there where at the beginning she's talking about how she was one with the animal and she was getting her aggression out. But then there's, like, one little line at the end where she says that we're allowed to appreciate the, the beauty of this killing machine because it has nothing to do with humans and with us yeah the you have to appreciate that divide absolutely yeah i love that i i that moment sort of popped into my brain as well because it has nothing to do with us as we all know learning doesn't stop after we leave school and that's the reason i'm such a fan of the great courses they have engaging video and audio lectures taught by the top professors including the course that i just watched the art of reading you can watch it or you can listen to it there on every platform that you need. If you want to download it to your iPad or to your iPhone, or you can have DVDs sent to your house, streaming and digital downloads. There's so many options with the great courses. And Timothy Spurgeon, the professor who taught the course, went into such great detail. I felt like I could get more out of my reading experience, which is why you want to take a course like that. The Great Courses is celebrating their 25th anniversary. They have over 500 courses on everything. Literature, history, science, art and music, photography, whatever your interest is, they have a course for it. And right now, for a limited time, they have a very special offer. Order from one of their eight best-selling courses, eight of them, including The Art of Reading, and you get up to 80% off the original price. 
That's so amazing. But this offer is only available for a very limited time. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash Nate. That's thegreatcourses.com slash Nate. We may be facilitating it, but what is happening in that moment, like chemically, has nothing to do with with humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love the description when she first realized that... um, when Mabel first realized that she was a killer and what she wanted to kill, I felt that was kind of amazing. Like she'd never seen these things before. She'd never seen a chick or I forget what the other things that were fed to her. But she knew instinctively what to do, where to look, and how to kill it. No one taught this, this hawk how to do that except herself, which I thought was pretty miraculous and i tried to wonder other places sort of in the animal kingdom where that happens where a mother or father animal doesn't teach their their baby animals how to do x y and z it's just in this hawk's brain inherently which is kind of amazing i want i want to also get anyone with this uh has any uh sort of overall opinions about the book um i asked whether people love the language all the way through no one raised their hand I was wondering, we can, we can talk freely. I'm sure Helen won't be listening to this. If there are moments in the book that were frustrating to you or that you found more appealing than others, did any, anything jump out to any of you guys that was more moving than other moments or more distracting than other moments? Yes, in the back. I've never said that before. Uh, well, my favorite part of the book was actually the T.H. White parts. Um, and what mm. I was really struck with was how much of an outsider he was and how he spent so much of his time striving. Like, did he have the right corduroy pants to go on the hunting party with these people? And, yeah. Um, and I thought that in some ways she really identified with him. She also wasn't a natural. When she talks about being an eight-year-old girl among these men in tweed, you know, in her first yes. book or anything, that, um, I don't know, I was sort of intrigued by the ways that she identified with him, even though they were... Um, very different. Were you a fan? Of, uh, are you a fan of Th Th White? I've never read him. Yeah, neither have I. So I I knew, which I think maybe helped me because I came into it with a completely empty brain. I I had no idea who this guy was. So it's sort of she got to paint the whole picture. I had no sort of prejudice. Um, but yeah, thanks for saying that. Um, did anyone else have anything to? We're going to wrap it up in just like five minutes or so. But I wondered if anyone else had other opinions about the book that they wanted to uh, share. What about this? Show of hands. Who gives this book four out of four stars? Not a single hand. What about three out of four stars? Yeah, there's, there's yeah, more hands. Um, two out of four stars. One out of four stars. How about zero out of four? Anyone, if you hate this book, you're not coming to the book club. For sure. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to happen. Um, I'm trying to see if there was any other things that I wanted to... She t- says all that stuff, doesn't she, about how she wouldn't harm a fly, right? Doesn't she? Mm-hmm. I liked mm-hmm. all the death bit. I had to kill a bird the other day. I'm a bird watcher. I had to kill a bird the other day. My oh, wife, no. yeah. Because we've got a little kid. He's very little. He's sort of about three years old. And he, outside our front door, there was a, a, a California toey chick, baby, with a just fledged with a broken wing and it was going round and round in circles oh, and um and so you were caught between this and this was upsetting our boy so you you then get the text from one's beloved wife saying please return to the house to kill that which you love and she didn't mean my son um so and um 
And so I raced back. I was at Figaro. I raced back. And she also said, by the way, I'm right next door. So you've got, you, you better race back really fast. Otherwise, he's, he's going to see, see it again. And um, he's going to be really, really sad. So not only was, did I come back to see this, this terribly, it was incredibly sad thing, doing circles on here. But I had to figure, yes. I could hear that my wife's car with the son returning, the, <laughs> the toddler returning out there. And I had to figure out how to get rid of the, 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 the bird, which obviously I had to kill because then the, the, she does this in the book with the mix. The, 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 the irresponsible thing is not to is, is Oh, not yes, to yes, kill yes, it. yes. So then I'm frantically fishing out. In the end, I had to get a, a, a garbage bag and... I had to pick up this bird because I didn't want to touch its feathers because it made me too sad. Then I oh. had to find a spade. At the same time, I'm being dive-bombed by its mother. Oh, good as, Lord. As my son's mother is coming through the, <laughs> the door. And I have to take it round the back, locate the spade. And the best thing I could do was just sit it there and close my eyes and thwack it twice. And I, I knew then that oh. it would... But, but, it's, but the point, the big thing point is, is that, that, that I think it's, in a way, it's a really important thing to do. Yeah. To have a sort of a, a, um, a voice in that debate. You've got, to, you've got to know a little bit, certainly with your, your, the meat thing. Um, eating meat without having sort of come to... Because I fish captured. too. Yeah. And I've discovered that I can't anymore... Even though I've ca- try and c- used to ca- try and catch trout to eat, having had a child, I can no longer dispatch the fish. So, but it's, a good, it's an important thing to do if you eat fish, it seems to be. Anyway, that was sort of apropos of nothing, except that I remembered it again when I was rereading this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When did this happen? There's a lot of death. About three days ago, not long ago. It's still fresh. Yeah. Uh, it isn't, actually. The, the bird itself is gone. But. <laughs> but we used to be much more comfortable with death, yeah. right? Like, we used to be... I don't know if any of you read Stiff, which is a great book, of, all about sort of what happens to the body when it dies, whether it goes to a medical institution, whether it's decomposing in the ground, all, all everything about right. death. And I remember reading that and then reading this, just how disconnected we are from death now. And we used to be surrounded by death. You used to, you know, sit with a dead mm. body for mm-hmm. days sometimes. I mean, different cultures have different things, but right now, me personally, I'm very separate from death, and it's something that we all, that should be a part of life, because yeah. it is. So to avoid it is is a whole nother issue. Yeah. And I think the hawk lets her deal with death and confront death. Yeah, there's a hawk as rehabilitator, is sort of this recurring theme that happens throughout the book. Um, which I love. I love that she's taking out Mabel and that she sees the runner and gets pissed and f- deals with her anger. Um, she's reminded that she's alive. There's a moment where she was going through her depression. This is before she saw the doctor and gone on um, antidepressants, where she was sort of walking through, I think, a field and feeling terrible. And Mabel went off the leash for one of the first times and came back. And she described, um, I'm going to butcher it, but um, basically the Mabel landing back on her fist made her realize that she was alive. So this hawk kept on helping her until it didn't, until it came to a moment where she said, this hawk is, is, this is a problem. This is leading me. This is not, I'm on the wrong path. I need to be with people. I need to commune. I need to be with other humans because now I'm living like this hawk. And in the beginning, I thought it was good because I had heightened awareness and I was seeing things I wouldn't, wasn't seeing before, but it was, wasn't allowing her to mourn. I feel like that was what was happening in the story. And so her transitioning like three quarters away of the book to realizing that this, this hawk was maybe not helping her fully mourn the loss of her dad, I thought it was great that she sort of came to terms with that. Um, 
And I, was, I wasn't sure if anyone else felt this, but she says two or three times that all the children's books that have animals in them, the animal dies every single time at the end. Whether it's Sounder, she lists like 10 of them. And I was like, oh, she's setting us up for Mabel to die a tragic death at the end of the book. And it never came. She puts it in the, um, I don't know if it's just like the after, the acknowledgements. She says, and last of all, most of all, I would like to thank my father who taught me how to love the moving world and my beautiful hawk who taught me how to fly in it after he was gone. Mabel flew for many more seasons before a sudden untreatable infection with aspergillosis, an awful airborne fungus, carried her from her aviary to the dark woods where dwell the lost and dead. She is much missed. But she didn't, I, I wondered why she, maybe it was because she already finished the book and this happened after the book was finished and sort of gallied and everything, but I wondered why she saved that. Because, I mean, we spend 270 pages with Mabel and Mabel dies and she's, it's not part of the story. It's sort of tossed in at the end in the acknowledgements. Is that another Britishism? No, I think it just happened afterwards. Fair enough. I think it's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I thought there was also something interesting, and she touches on it a couple times with the sort of parental relationship with the hawk and how, uh, and this idea of, and I am not a parent, so you can probably speak more to this. This is just um, my interpretation of parenthood. But this idea that you have a child and you start to see through their eyes and you see things anew, and then at some point you do have to let them go and, and let them identify without you. And that is such a hard breakaway, at least it was for me and my parents, you know, needing to separate from them and not define myself based on them or against them. And it, it seems to be her journey as well, this sort of in, intense identification with the hawk and then needing to let it go. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Someone once said to me, you have to um, separate from your parents or else you won't survive their death. Mm. And it Whoa. seems that she can't survive her dad's death. And in some way, the, the path with the hawk and her separation from it is also her being able to yeah. separate from her father. I've had this conversation with my brother and my sister. We both, both of our parents were living and are healthy and in their 70s, but they're well. And we have, my family has never suffered a catastrophic loss. My grandparents have died, but we weren't, we would see them four or five times a year, but we weren't, um, they weren't like intertwined in our day-to-day lives growing up. And my brother and sister are both healthy and We've had deaths of friends and aunts and uncles, but no one who was like this enormous presence in my life. All those people are still around for me. And I was saying to my brother and sister like, at Christmas, like when that happens, I'm going to be broken because I've never experienced it before and I have no practice. And I'm worried, like it's going to happen eventually. And I'm worried that I'm not gonna be able to negotiate it because I've never negotiated it before. Um, and I think what Crispin said earlier that, you know, you, it's a book that you may go back to, you know, hopefully it's not for a long time but when your dad passes, that it's helpful. And I think, it, I think this book provides that for a lot of people. For its, its faults that I found in the book, I think a lot of people, this will provide them an enormous amount of comfort, which I think is wonderful. And probably one of the reasons why she wrote this. I'm assuming her dad died 
probably several years ago. This didn't happen two years ago. And so she had time to go through and say, well, this, maybe this is a helpful way to sort of get this on paper and maybe help other people. So whether or not that was intentional, who cares? But it, it is. Um, we'll wrap up. Um, just sort of closing thoughts. I just, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was lovely. I think she has a beautiful voice. At times I found myself distracted, but it is a book... Um, it is a book I'll absolutely recommend to people. Um, it's just impossible to not have screeching microphones. Uh, Crispin, do you have a final thought? Oh, I, I like to. I just don't want my microphone to do anything. No, you're strange. good. You're, ba- uh, you're like if in the children's yeah, section. Yeah, no, I've been really careful, pointing this way, <laughs> leaning. No, I really liked it, and I like it more. Sort of the more that you we talk about we it. Chat about it, yeah. Yeah. Aya, do you have closing thoughts? Well, on that note, I actually find that true of almost anything. And it's what the point of the book is, right? That like the more deeply you go into something, the more interesting you'll end up finding it. Mm. And we are so quick to dismiss things. And honestly, I don't know if I would have pushed through this book had I not had a deadline of Tuesday right. to to get it done. And I'm very glad I did. And I think it's just, it's this the lesson that she's trying to teach us, I feel like I learned. I feel like I, um, my patience was tried and yeah. that it's something that I want to work on. And I thought that was, and just refocus and, and pay more attention. That's fantastic. The, the, another thing that I'll go back to, and if you get ho- if you don't have the book with you, if you go home and look at it, for me, um, that the patient it's on page nine, from like nine, ten, and eleven. I won't read it now because it's too long. But when she flashes back to being a little girl and having her dad teach her patience, and within two paragraphs, and she she picks up that piece of moss and it's in her hand, and that's the thing that she's looking at when she gets the phone call from her mother that her father has died. Um, I wrote at the end of that page, and we're off. And I thought it was like the great, wonderful way to start this book. That, page, that story about patience is really lovely and moving. And I agree. I think it, that's one of the things that you can take from this book. Um, the next book uh, for the book club, it won't be a, a public event, but we do. Uh, the podcast every month has a book club. We've read some amazing books. And this month uh, for August is The Invaders. Um, I feel like, is it Carolina? Carolina, well, well, Chloe, well, thank you. Uh, she's a local writer um, from LA, and I think she's she read here like three or four days ago or something, which is great. Um, and Tom Parada has uh, a pull quote in the cover, so that always sells me because I'm such a huge Tom Parada fan. A gut punch of a novel, a scathing look at privilege. Well, Chloe is a remarkable writer. Um, it takes place in Connecticut, and it's sort of about um, status and class between sort of the, the privileged part of this Connecticut scene town and the working class part of like the fishermen and how they sort of clash um, in her relationship with her husband and her son and sort of this like privileged sort of Connecticut. Um, that kind of world just fascinates me. That, that entire world is, is fascinating. If you want to buy this book, you can buy it tonight um, for 15% off, which is awesome. Thank you, Skylight Books. And it'll be uh, recorded in a month or so. I think the 17th or 18th of August, and then that episode will air the third week of August. So that'll be the next book club. Um, and the podcast airs uh, three Fridays, the first, third, and fourth Friday of every week. It's on iTunes and SoundCloud, and Wolf Pop is the parent company. Wolf Pop and Earwolf are sort of these great places for comedy podcasts, Comedy Bang Bang, and 
How Did This Get Made, the Sklar Brothers, all these great podcasts are there if you're looking for podcasts. Um, again, big thanks uh, to Skylight Books, to Crispin Wattel, to Aya Cash. God bless you, Sam, for bringing all this equipment and being an amazing engineer. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming, and uh, we'll see you again soon. Good night. like podcasts of course you do otherwise why would you punish yourself like this hi i'm professional raconteur paul f tompkins and i want to tell you about a podcast i know you will fall desperately foolishly unhealthily in love with spontaneation that's my show every week i ask a special guest like colin hanks or caitlin olson or michael sheen to answer one interesting question then i and my comedy friends will assemble a brand new story before your very ears using nothing but details from that guest's answer our wits a prayer to saint anthony improv training hope a prayer to saint jude comedy experience and microphones impossible you say well impossible is just i'm possible with an apostrophe missing and i always have a pocket full of apostrophes so i am very possible here's the proof i'm just gonna get your cookie think oh do you have uh, there's not garlic at these is there no okay good that would be gross. How about raisins? No. Oh, thank God. Or the double tree. <laughs> not Martha Stewart. <laughs> and Eben Schletter scores it all on a piano he carved from a single piece of wood. It's like attending a fancy dinner party with your funniest time-traveling, teleporting friends. Spontaneation. We're just making this shit up. Hop. Wolf Pop is part of Midroll Media, executive produced by Adam Sachs, Matt Gorley, and Paul Shear.